Cardi Gale, you're standing at the front door of episode 38 of the Rebel Matters podcast. So kick off your shoes and come on in, make yourself at home. I'm your host, Anlo Carlan, as usual. And it's a bloody good week for the podcast. This is episode 38. I'm after getting myself into a good routine where I'm recording the bits and pieces and working on the podcast on Thursday to make sure that we get it out on Friday and we're getting one out consistently and it's fucking brilliant that people are listening to the podcast as well. This is probably the first week where we've had a good load of messages coming into the Facebook page and a good lot of feedback about last week's episode, which was Ask Yuliga and it was really good episode for me personally because I got to sit down and ask my dad loads of questions about what it was like in Belfast uh, growing up for him and how he got involved in the Irish language movement which he's very well known for and it's not every day that you get to do that and it was also really nice to get feedback from people who were like saying they listened to it and that they were also trying out their couple of fuckle which is really good this week kind of feels like the Rebel Matters podcast is a real podcast now because of the fact that people are getting in touch through the various social media outlets that we're on and a few messages came in from Facebook so I just want to give a shout out to Ray McCrossan who got in touch saying he was listening to the podcast Joe Kane and Kane Murphy on Facebook thanks a million for all the support lads and for getting in touch and for sending the messages I've also been checking out the map on Libsyn where the podcast is hosted, hosted and it tells you like where people around the world are listening to the Rebel Matters podcast like Norway a pair of listeners in Sweden Finland good for you in Canada actually oh, there's one person listening in Ecuador keep it real mate can you guess that one person in Malawi one in South Africa and then a big pile of people listening in um, down under down in Australia and one of the lads who trains with us in the gym, Seamus Kennedy, is um, I've been having some really good podcast chats with him and Tom Kennedy is in Brisbane listening to the podcast, Seamus' cousin. So um, it's really good to have people listening around the world and also to hear like firsthand that people like say like Seamus come in and be like, yeah, my cousin Tom was listening to the podcast in Brisbane. I was like, what? No way. Class. So fucking Grumaga Tom has to be a guest jacked and um Drop me a message or something, uh, if you want to, through Facebook or uh, Instagram. Another reason why this is a cracker day for the Rebel Matters podcast is the Patreon. Patreon account is off the ground. The Rebel Matters podcast is on the Patreon platform and you can find it in rebel or patreon.com forward slash rebel matters. And this week we got our first patron, Maridney Crewe, Guramila Mayagat, as she knew Seuss done Patreon, I guess. Because of this, I'm now a professional podcaster. As of this minute, um, the Rebel Matters podcast is a professional podcast. All the episodes so far have been amateur because the Patreon wasn't really off the ground, and now it is. So it's a professional podcast. Bloody good feeling. Gurmila Margaret. If any of you out there who are listening to the podcast now fancy supporting the Rebel Matters podcast in that way, then you can find it on Patreon. But also, it is a massive help when people share the episodes and a good kind of motivation booster for me whenever you leave comment under something or ask a question about the podcast or even just drop a wee message on the social media to let me know that you're out there and you're, you're listening and I think we're building something pretty nice here uh, so I'm going to keep it going we're going to keep this train going all the way until it's no longer any crack and if it's shite crack you can let me know as well but I probably will keep them going because I'm enjoying doing them
This week's episode is a conversation with John Fleming, who I've known for a number of years now, mainly because of the fact that he's been working with us as a member in Ackley. But more recently, he's been helping us out and he has been bringing our team at Ackley through a course that is based around transactional analysis, which is what John does as his professional in as part of his professional career. John's a counsellor. He's a coach and a trainer. He also works in the Sexual Health Centre in Cork and you can find out more about him on johnfleming.ie which is his website and that has a lot more information about the transactional analysis stuff that we start talking about today and that John has been covering with us as a, as a team in Ackley. And in the episode today we got into a really nice conversation about mental health and mental health in Ireland, more specifically transactional analysis, John's work in the area of mental health, and we also talked about sexual health, which is another area that John works in. So it was a really nice conversation, and actually when I was listening back to it, I had to do very, very, very minimal editing just one or two times whenever I whacked the table by mistake and I edited it out so that it wasn't a big assault on your ears while you were listening to the conversation between myself and John. So let's just get stuck straight into it. As usual, get in touch and let me know what you think about the episode when it's over and share the episode around on your social media. I think this is an important episode of the Rebel Matters podcast because of the fact that we're discussing something that's so topical and so important today. And it is especially an episode that I would like to hear from people about in and around that that area of conversation so you know what to do and you know how to get in touch you can do that after you've listened to the episode but anyway enough chatting let's get stuck into the conversation with john fleming Thanks very much for coming in to the studio to do the podcast, um, John. So I don't. Maybe it would be a good place to start if we like start from the beginning, and you can like tell people who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is John Fleming. Um, I come from a small village in West Cork called Tim Leek, which is also where my granny's from. Yeah, exactly. Um, great place to come from. They're all the best people in the world come to So me. I believe. Uh, so um, I grew up on a dairy farm there, had a pretty regular life, went to school in Clonakilty. Um, and probably when I was a young teenager, um, developed a really uh, strong interest in psychology and mental health. Um, and I think people develop these interests normally because they're having their own experiences around it. Um, so I would have been somebody that struggled when I was a teenager with mental health issues. Um, and I think that's a, a leniency in towards developing an interest there because um, pe- oftentimes people who are really interested in sport go on to do things like PE teaching or become a, a, trainer, a trainer. So in those formative years, you kind of form your main interests. So... Um, 
I've been working probably for the last five years um, in and around Cork mainly um, in loads of different facets around mental health and personal development. Um, so currently I work in private practice in Cork City and in Clonakilty and I main, work mainly with young people, mainly with young men um, who are experiencing wide variety of issues from depression to anxiety and everything in between. Um, I work in the Sexual Health Centre, which is an NGO um, in the city centre in Cork. Um, I work there with young LGBT people um, and predominantly with young trans people at the moment um, around gender identity. <clears throat> I also host and facilitate Transformers, which is a youth peer support group with a therapeutic focus for young trans people in Cork. And that's organised by Tenny Transgender Equality Network Ireland. Um, I run personal development courses in Cork City and Clonakilty myself, which have a focus of using a method of psychology called transactional analysis. Um, and I'm also working in schools in a private capacity, just to add to the list, you know, um, doing kind of well-being programmes, um, because obviously that's a huge focus now for the junior cycle. Um, and I've developed a programme called Being Well in the World, um, uh, to meet that cr kind of criteria to help young people understand themselves um, and their relationships with other people better. That's a pretty long list of stuff that you're involved in at mm. the minute. Here, you know, when you were, when you, like you mentioned there, when you were a teenager, you developed an interest in mental health. But mental health today is kind of in the public domain, a bit more being talked about. But like 15 years ago, it wasn't so much a thing that was talked about I think there was maybe a little bit more of a stigma around it or something like that that'd be fair to say yeah I think so I think that Ireland has transformed particularly over the last five years but prior to that there would have been a lot of stigma attached to mental health um, I think I use the word mental health uh, the words mental health now and I don't even blink but mental health is not something I talked about when I was 14, 15 years of age. I wasn't even aware that I had mental health problems. That's very much a reflection from where I am today. Um, at the time, I just knew that I wasn't okay. Um, and I didn't really have the words um, to push with that. I didn't really understand it. Um, and talking to people about it was difficult because it's not something that there was an avenue to talk to about it. You know, I knew that if I hurt myself or if I was feeling unwell physically, <clears throat> that it would be okay to speak to my parents or teachers or peers about that. But there wasn't discussions happening in 2004, 2005 about um, how you were feeling emotionally. Definitely not. The Wexford Hurling team that won the All-Ireland in around about the mid-90s had actually brought in a sports psychologist mm. called Nephis Patrick, but they did it like it was like top secret because there was the fear that people would think that they were kind of something wrong with them or something if they were found to be even using a psychologist for to get the age in sport. And that's like in a supporting context, not even in a kind of a clinical or a more health kind of area. Yeah, completely. Um, I, I think you have to look at the roots of mental health as well to, to understand that, you know, in terms of psychiatry is really where it all began around terms of under, trying to understand and deal with mental health problems. <clears throat> and psychiatry has its own history, you know, in terms of how it treated people. Um, and I think that created a stigma because once upon a time, if you had a mental health problem, you were kind of seen as as mad. You know, you know, that word was thrown around like, oh, sure, he's he's a bit mad or, you know, she's tapped or he's not well or, you know, she's not with it. Um, and I think that we've come a long way since then. But even up to, to five years ago, I would have said that some of that still really existed, particularly in rural Ireland. 
when you're looking back now to your teenage years, do can you see particular things that contributed to the issues that you were experiencing with your mental health? Yeah, I definitely think that um, Ireland has become a lot more open. I don't think it was as open in 2004, 2005. Um, and I think that definitely was one of the, the contributions because I think that if you're growing up in a community or society where there's openness and acceptance about whatever is going on, then it's much easier to deal with some of the issues. But if that isn't there, it almost makes them worse because what happens is you begin to internalise and you begin to say to yourself, oh, well, this is actually all about me. I'm the problem here because everybody else is okay. Um, so I definitely think that um, society plays a big role in how we identify, acknowledge and deal with our problems. And if society isn't being open and accepting about them, it actually makes them worse. So did you feel like that there wasn't the right avenues for you to kind of express yourself or to talk about your feelings whenever you were a teenager? Is that kind of what you're saying there? Or? I, I think I think that on a broader scale, there wasn't. Um, I, I was a, a very forthright teenager. And I went and sought out what I needed to protect and look after myself. But it wasn't something that was advertised. It wasn't something that I'd been told was available. It wasn't something that was provided to me. It was something that I went and demanded. Um, and no young person should have to do that. Um, so, you know, that's part of the reason that I have overcome the obstacles that were put in front of me. But not everybody has the ability or the know-how to do that. Um, and I think that's important. Um, so, you know, I was lucky. And I do think it was luck. Like when you, when I listen to you talking about that, like there are probably countless young men and women as well who have probably taken their own lives because of the fact that they weren't able to find their way through and get lucky and have some sort of avenue to get themselves out of the wrong, out of the other side. But it's probably very important at this stage that you're here to share your story and mm. probably by doing so like the people are going to be able to relate to it a little bit like w what were the particular obstacles that you were going through whenever you were um, experiencing those things um, I think that I probably didn't fully even understand at the time what was going on you know I think that's something that now um, having done the training that I've done I, I'm able to understand a lot better uh, I think we actually know very little about ourselves um, I think we know sometimes that something is wrong but we, we can't really figure out what it was so th there was there was a lot of factors that were going on for me as a young teenager I think that um, uh, I identify as a gay man and that was something that was definitely kind of at the core of what was going on for me around that key developmental age you know in terms of my identity and figuring out who I was um, and I think that you know again growing up in rural Ireland there wasn't a whole lot of acceptance I definitely didn't know any other gay men there was no uncle or cousin or anybody who was gay you know so it was, it, for me it was like me I, I think the only other gay men I would have seen would have been on TV and even at that it was limited so I didn't really have a clear trajectory of what this would look like. So it was like coming to terms with that. And I, I think growing up in a small community in 2004, that was a challenge for me that I that I found difficult. And then there was other things going on in terms of school pressures around, um, you know, was I a good enough man? You know, because I wasn't particularly into sport or things like that. And I think I really started to make some decisions about myself of, well, to be a good man, you have to be sporty and you have to be tough. And I wasn't either of those. I was quite sensitive and um, I liked arts and humanities and things like that. And that's not what my peers were into around that time. So I was starting to ask myself some really hard existential questions about who I was. Um, and I think as a 14 year old boy growing up in a small community, that's difficult because I didn't have the skills to understand 
what was going on. I didn't have the skills to understand that these were existential questions and that everybody goes through them. I just felt kind of trapped and alone. Something that you said there really sticks out that you said that you didn't really know at the time that was like there was what was up or that was something wrong. And it's mm. only by looking back now, which is like, that's like a really important message from a mental health point of view that if you're feeling like there's a dark cloud hanging over you, but you can't put your finger on why it is that there is probably a reason for it, but to like, it's important to realize that you can come out the other side of it. And it's at some point, then maybe you, you don't need to make sense of it at the time, I guess is the thing. Like it's hard to make sense of something when it's so intense and it's happening right there and then, but to come out the other side and then eventually, like you're saying, you may be able to look back and say, ah, I can see like why it was like that now, but I didn't see it at the time. 100% Anla, I, I think that's a really important message because mental health is, is vastly different from physical health in the sense of, you know, if you get an infection, they're normally able to identify what the infection is really quickly. They know what the root problem is. They can give you treatment for it and it gets better. But with mental health, it's not always that obvious. Um, and I think even with the way public services around mental health are even structured today in Ireland, um, it's very much a medical model. And I don't think that works all the time. It works in some instances, but not everyone, because it's a kind of a catch all system. And on you know, people are different. We're all unique in some aspects. So if there is young people out there who are struggling, I think that is an important message that I would like to send them, um, is that, you know, you might not know what it is or what the root of it is, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong, you know. So if you can get some validation out of the fact that just the fact that you're feeling off could be enough to be telling you that there's something going on, but you might not figure out for a while what that is and to just trust yourself. Um, and I think that f as a practitioner, I very much take the stance of offering young people um, contracts for support and care rather than always contracts for change because change can only happen when somebody actually figures out what's going on but it, what are they meant to be doing in the intermediary you know it might take them a couple of years to figure out what's going on and then we can just start doing some change work but in the run-up to that they need lots of care and support so I'll be offering people care and support while they're figuring that out it's interesting that I, to hear you say that. Whenever I was over in Palestine, one of the messages that I got from a couple of different people was that it's impossible to deal with trauma as it's happening. Mm. It's like after the trauma, then you, you have to do what you have to do to get through the initial kind of like dark stages. And then afterwards, then you can start to try and heal the, heal the wounds as such. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that that's where we really need to differentiate between physical and mental health. There is an awful lot of talk at the moment about how connected they are, which they are. So that's not what I'm challenging. What I'm challenging is the process behind dealing with it. And that is that you can't rush into it. You know, so like with physical health, you're not going to be able to do six sessions of therapy and fix a problem. Whereas I think the medical model often wants to achieve results in kind of tight time frames. So, for example, the NHS in England, which offers an awful lot of therapy at a primary care level. So in GP practices, they'll offer people six sessions of CBT. And it's like, well, it's a bit unrealistic to get somebody in who has maybe been suffering with depression or anxiety for a few years and to give them six sessions of CBT and think that they're going to be able to walk back out into the world and live a happy life. Um, the, the six sessions for me would be more about offering care and support. But I think that the medical model and the public services don't look at it that way. They look at six sessions fixed onto the next person.
And I think we need to start challenging how we look at these things, you know, that they're, it's a long process um, as opposed to a, a quick turnaround. You know, you mentioned that about your experiences when you were a kid that kind of like uh, influenced your career path mm. and how you're doing. I think that probably has a lot of value to you as a therapist, not to like, not in a way to say like, kind of blowing your own trumpet or anything out there, like, but you, it must be a really sort of strong asset to you if you're working with other people that you've gone through your own kind of issues and you've dealt, them, dealt with them that they can relate to it. That's like seems to be one of the main things that people need someone to connect with and they can yeah know. i think one of the core um qualities that i would look for in any good therapist is empathy um and i think we sometimes get confused between what sympathy and empathy is and if anybody's listening isn't sure then Brene brown has a really quick short youtube video um that highlights the difference between sympathy and empathy um so you should just go check that out and it'll tell you pretty quickly but for me it's all about empathy and that is just about understanding where the other person at i don't rush in to fix the problem to to minimize the problem to devalue the problem um i just look to validate it you know so it might be as simple as just saying to somebody i can really hear where you're at you know and and it's shit i know what that place looks like and it's not nice to be there and sometimes young people need to hear that particularly from um somebody who is young as well you know, um, I think that's another thing that feedback I'm constantly getting um, is that I get a lot of clients coming to my door because of my age. And typically the therapeutic profession in Ireland hasn't attracted many young people because there's not the career paths um, into it from university. It's something you have to study part time by night or on weekends and you can't fill out a CA form to become a counsellor and psychotherapist, which I think is, is a shame because there's a lot of young people out there that would be very good at this job. Brene Brown, who you mentioned, there wrote a book called Raising Strong. Mm. Actually, sitting up on the shelf there. Ah, very good. So yeah. uh, people can check that out if they yeah, want to. Yeah, and, oh, actually, people can come to the Ackley Book Club and borrow it if they want to. <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you was because you're at the minute bringing uh, the team at Ackley through a course in transactional analysis, which is a lot of the work that you're doing at the minute. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and I was like absolutely buzzing after the first session that we did or the first two sessions that we did on the last day so tell us a little bit about that there what what is yeah. transaction analysis so um i'm going to start calling it ta for short because it's just easier so you all know what i'm referring to so ta is a psychological theory developed in the 50s by a guy called eric byrne um he he was originally from canada and then moved to the states um really interesting character he um basically founded transaction analysis because he didn't like what was going on in the psychoanalysis profession in the States around the time. Um, What he was observing was that there was a superiority complex um, that um, I, I can't speak that all of them were like that, but this is just his experience and I'm reiterating it, is that what he was seeing was that... Um, these doctors in white coats um, who might have also been psychiatrists and uh, practicing psychoanalysts were really looking down on people. You know, uh, one, one key part is they were calling them patients, not clients. So most of us who are therapists these days will call our clients clients, not patients. Um, we don't look at them as being sick or ill um, uh, unless you work in psychiatry, which is very different uh, frame of work and um, he, he really wanted to develop a theory and practice that kind of held these people in an okay place um, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that is in a second um, so th- 
he developed this theory in the 50s and it's kind of been ever growing and evolving since. Um, and if I was to kind of put it in one sentence, I would say that TA is a easy to understand set of simple models, which all come with diagrams that help you understand who you are, what your relationship with yourself is like and how you relate to other people. Um, which is very powerful because you can teach this stuff to an eight-year-old and they'll understand it. Um, and that was the other key thing that Eric Byrne wanted to do. He wanted to develop a theory that anybody could understand, even a child. Because at the time, a lot of the psychological theory out there was very highfalutin, uh, lots of psychobabble, jargon, and, you know, really, it was almost like re reading a legal paper, you know, but it's kind of like psychological words and it was very difficult to understand. So the the... The positive of, of TA is that when you're working with a client, whether it be in a therapeutic setting or somewhere else, you can share the theory with them. You can help them integrate their understanding by actually teaching them um, some of the theory. Whereas prior to that, you know, it would be kept secret. You know, it would be like, oh, we won't tell the patient what's wrong with them. They were just getting the, the sort of like the, the final piece. Yeah, of like the, the diagnosis or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, your label, you have this, you know, whereas I suppose definitely my kind of approach to my work is very much co-creation. So I would, I would think that I'd be kind of a co-creative uh, professional, whether I were working in education or in a therapeutic setting, um, and that me and the client are co-creating the work, that they're bringing as much value to the space, if not more, as I am, that it's not just all about me, the professional. Um, so I found TA in, I think it was probably around 2012, um, I was a management consultant at the time and we were doing some management training and one of the modules was on TA and we covered um, ego states and transactions and it just blew me away. I was like, oh, this is gold. Like, you know, this, this is really gold. So I always kind of kept it at the back of my head. And when I made the decision to train as a therapist, I decided to train in the UK. So for the last four years, I've been flying back and forth to the UK to train in transaction analysis because you can't currently train it in Ireland. CIT and Cork um, offer a psychotherapy course and one whole year is devoted to TA therapy in that course. But I wanted to do TA outright. I, I, I was hungry to learn more of this wonderful theory. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. See, to bring it back a little bit, and why do you think we need TA? Like, sometimes I... I just look around and I kind of like when I'm feeling a little bit less positive than I usually am I'm like we're completely fucked there's like there's so many things going on around here that it's a very hard time to have it's a kind of guess it's a hard time to look after mental health in a way and in part because of there's so many incoming pieces of information like why do you think that this these types of things are so important today I think TA in particular um, offers a lot of hope and optimism. It's a very idealistic theory. Um, so at its core, it's really kind of shining a light saying, actually, everybody is good at the core. Everybody is okay. And I think that theories that offer that, that level um, of optimism and positivity are very potent um, and can't be underestimated, actually, because if they can give somebody that lift and motivation, um, then I'm all for sharing them. And I think that now more than ever, in terms of our evolution, as a as a global village and particularly as a society in Ireland, um, we're asking ourselves more questions about who we are and why we are the way we are than we ever have before. 
And I think this is probably part of the evolution process. I don't have any evidence to back that up. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but I think that we are now more we're asking ourselves more existential questions than we ever have before and that brings with it its own problems it creates dilemmas for people because if people start asking themselves those big questions about who am i what am i here to do and what do i want from this life uh, sometimes the answers they get back to themselves can be challenging and they need help figuring that out and understanding it i think also that there's a lot of social change particularly in Ireland at the moment, but I would say across the world. And I think that also brings with a change in society um, in terms of how we um, understand ourselves and understand our emotions. And in a way, there's just been kind of like the lid has been lifted off the repression that once was in Ireland. And I think we're trying to mop up the the crap still. Like, you know? Anecdotally speaking, and obviously without... Um breaking any kind of confidence and stuff like that there do people is there anything like tangible that you see that people are coming to you with like for example like the bombardment of like advertising on social media or mm. the fact that we're living in a time where like rent is just keep going up for people for the people who you're working with young people like are probably mostly renting places is there are there tangible things like that that are happening in society today that you see are causing uh, issues in terms of health mental health yeah, there, there's not any one thing that comes to mind in particular, but I think it's definitely the collective. There is a lot of pressure on young people today in terms of the expectations that's put on them more than anything else, you know. Um, and I think that expectations comes from all directions. I think it comes from parents. I think it comes from peers. It comes from older siblings. And I think it just comes from an old aging population in general about who they have to be, how quick they have to grow up, how okay they have to be, and all of these things. It comes from advertising as well like 100% yeah I think social media and advertising we still don't fully understand the negative impacts that that's having um, and I think that we won't for a while like anything that's still relatively new the the studies haven't been done yet but from from a anecdotal point of view yeah like people are definitely under pressure I see lots of teenagers coming in who are being bullied via social media they might not even realise that it's bullying um, and I think that that's very difficult for them because what it does is it really impacts their self-esteem and their self-confidence um, and they put a lot of pressure on themselves about how they should be performing um, and the way they should look and what they should be doing you know and there's always the next trend you know every young person that comes into me now uh, sits across from me and I can see a Fitbit on their wrist you know, and, and that's that's a strong message. Like, you know, it's like, because why are, you know, 14 and 15 year olds counting steps um, and things like that? Like, you know, like their bodies are still developing. They're still growing. They're at the peak of puberty. And um, it's worrying. You know, it, it definitely is worrying. What I was going to ask you there was one of the things that struck me from the workshop that we did together in Ackley was the three different states of communication parent state the child state and the adult state mm. can we talk about that a little bit because i think that was something that was one of the main takeaways that i took away just to expand my awareness of the levels of communication that yeah. i have with people so <clears throat> there is a, a really helpful model in ta called ego state model and um, it's three circles stacked one on top of each other and um, the top one traditionally was the parent uh, the middle one the adult and the bottom one the child 
And this was developed by Eric Byrne as a kind of a continuation of Freud's work around what he was noticing around ego. Um, and <clears throat> it's important that we call them ego states. So it's not that we have three egos, but that they're ego states that we move in and out of. So they're not fixed. Um, and it's about what um, they they home um, or what they're home to rather. So the, the parent ego state is kind of home to um, our experiences of the big people that were around us when we were growing up, predominantly around the ages of three to seven. So teachers, sports coaches, parents, aunts and uncles, anybody who was around the child quite a lot. Um, what, what we do in TA is we kind of look at like what's in that ego state is those people. So you're interjecting your parents, you're interjecting your teachers. Um, so, you know, sometimes later on in life, people say, oh, you know, I opened my mouth and my mother came out. You know, of course they did, because that leaves an impression on you. And um, oftentimes what's also in the, the parent ego state, which is kind of a more functional aspect, is what we refer to as critical and controlling parent in one half of the circle and in the other half of the circle, the nurturing parent um, and it's also about identifying where you might be communicating from so if you're communicating from your parent ego state are you coming from a critical place or are you coming from a nurturing place and sometimes people might have way more cr critical parents than they do of nurturing parents or vice versa somebody might have a lot of nurturing parents and a lot of, uh, less critical parents and if you're able to look at the big people who you were in your life when you were a kid you can often see why that is you know because you might have had a parent who was very critical or a parent who was very nurturing if you go down then to the bottom, to the child ego state, they are thoughts, feelings and behaviours that happened when you were a child. And really your child ego state is, is, is a continuation. It's being kind of populated all through your life of, of old experiences. But nearly always they're connected to things that happened when you were a child. And, and the functional aspect of that then is that you have the rebellious an adaptive child on one half, so the child that won't do anything or the child that will say, yes, no problem, I'll do whatever you ask me to. And then the other side, you've got the free child. And that's the child who's kind of carefree, happy, having fun. So you can see already that you can kind of see the negative and aspect sides of the ego state and where you might be communicating from. The adult in the centre then is, is about the here and now reality. OK, so the adult isn't thinking about what happened when I was a child and it's not thinking about what the parent would say. It's reacting to the here and now in an adult way. So, you know, you, you might ask me a question Anla, and I might react very critically and be like, why are you asking me a question like that for? And that might be a kind of a parent reaction or I might just answer the question because you asked me a question. That would be an adult reaction. Do you know what I mean? Um, or I, I might say, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll answer any question you ask me. That might be adaptive child. You know, one um, really good way or exercise I use sometimes when I'm teaching this model is I get people to develop um, voicemail recordings for the different ego states. Um, you know, so like a, a critical parent voicemail recording would be like, I'm not here right now. You rang at a very bad time. You need to leave your name, your number, your phone number. And if you don't leave it, then I'm not going to be able to ring you back. And that's going to be your fault. You know, you can see that. Whereas a free child might, you know, leave a fart noise on the voicemail recording. 
you know so that that would be the difference um and uh, an adult then of course might just say like hi you've reached john i'm not here at the moment uh, leave a message and i'll get back to you so you can see the very differences there about how how we might be communicating from different places so the, so i'm just trying to summarize this in my own head so i get a clear picture and it's kind of good to hear you talking about it again because we haven't really discussed it since mm. the last time we did the workshop but is it right to say that we all have the potential to have these three different ego states? We all, uh, the TA would view is that we all do have these ego states. Yeah, yeah, not the potential. We all have them. The potential yeah. to be in them, though, yes. at any one time? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. then that the ego state that you're in can affect how you make someone else feel or how you feel when somebody else is communicating to you. Yeah, it could be, yeah. So I suppose the kind of goal, really, of TA in a therapeutic sense is what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to make adults bigger. We're trying to make adults stronger. We're trying to make adults the boss, in a way, okay? And what we try to do with that is we try to integrate the three ego states into one. So it's like, you can have your experiences and know they were experiences you had when you were a child, but you don't need to be reacting from them now, which can be difficult for people. Because time and time again, people get into situations where like, why do I always get triggered? Why do I always react like that when this happens or when I'm with that person? And um, we, The term we use in TA for that is getting rubber banded. You get rubber banded back to somewhere else, somewhere where when you were probably quite a young child. So the aim is to be able to acknowledge the existence of these experiences and realize that they're in the past and they're not happening now and that what's happening now is different and that it's an adult situation and to be able to deal with that in an adult way. And the same from the parent. It's about to say, okay, well, you could choose to react very critically to the situation, but is that helpful? Is that really going to sort the situation out or could you just stay calm and you could deal with it, you know, particularly when things go wrong? You mentioned the word there, tri triggered. Mm. I actually only heard that word for the first time about two months ago. And I think it's probably a good saying. It's probably a good thing that people are talking about mental health and yeah. kind of realizing certain circumstances are awakening feelings that they haven't felt in a while for one reason or another. But interesting, like see the terminology, even is that is the term adult is kind of a controversial enough term in a way today because of the fact that I read recently that People are like getting married much older, having kids much older, staying in their home house for much longer, so that the term like you no know, go and be an adult is kind of in the balance now as well. Whereas before it was like you're left home when you're eighteen, go and get a job, get married, and then you're an adult and you have a house and you get a mortgage and all. But that's yeah. not really happening in the traditional sense anymore mm. because of just the way that things are. Yeah, well, I suppose it's. It, it, I definitely take on board what you're saying, and I suppose it's really important for me to say in terms of protecting TA, <laughs> um, is that we use uh, parent, child, and adult with a capital letter. So it's capital P, capital A, capital C. So we're not talking about whether the person is an adult or a child or not. Um, we're just using that as a way of kind of describing what the reaction might be like. So oftentimes the, when you're in reacting from a child ego state, it, the behavior can be quite childlike um, rather than, uh, you know, saying that they are a child if that makes sense um, because of course once the person is, is old enough but I take on board what you're saying you know I don't um, I don't think that you know there is an age where we become an, an adult like I, I definitely remember thinking you know that was it when I turned 18 you know yeah. like uh, sometimes I'm thinking if this is what it's like to be an adult I was like I'll go back I'll be a kid no problem sweet <laughs> yeah. I'll just stay in 
child state. Yeah. It's funny, like, because I think that's something that I talk to the young people I work with now, actually, you know, because sometimes they have this grand idea that, you know, once they turn 18, that's it. You know, great, sorted, life's easy. Um, And I don't think it plays out that way. I think, actually, um, looking back for me now, my early 20s were more difficult to navigate than my teenage years. Um, but of course, when I was a teenager, I didn't know that was going to be the case. Uh, but looking back, I think my early 20s were very difficult because when that breaking away from your family of origin um, is it, difficult, you know. And I think that there's a lot going on developmentally as well. You know, people don't really talk about it, but you're in puberty right up till 25. Um, your body's still growing. Uh, your brain is still growing. Like the frontal cortex hasn't fully formed until the age of 25. Um, so there's so much going on in the body. And I think that brings with it a lot of other challenges emotionally and psychologically as well that we un- tend to underestimate and discount. You know, we don't, we don't teach our young people that their bodies are developing and growing until they're 25. Um, and, you know, then a lot of people start drinking heavily and doing other things when they turn 18. And actually their body is in, not in the place. You know, I mean, it's never going to be in the place. But particularly while they're going through that period, it can have devastating effects to their overall well-being. Something that you've mentioned a couple of times so far has been the the expectations that people have or that people think others have of them. And I think that you kind of touched on it there about the kind of expectations of adulthood as such in the modern world. A lot of the times are like the expectations are that you go and get a mortgage and you buy a car that mm. you have to pay back and that you get a job somewhere that you don't really like. And it's like maybe not connected with the conversation we're having about the adult state as it relates to transactional Mm. analysis but I think it's like fuck those expectations like (laughs) in a lot of ways yeah well they create a lot of disappointment um, actually and that's that's the big problem I think this is rooted into um, how we create some of the problems that people face around disappointment because if they take on these expectations and internalise them um, and they don't work out then they're going to feel disappointed with themselves. They're going to think everybody else feels disappointed. It might even be the case that other people are disappointed in them. Um, and that can be really hard to navigate, um, you know, in, in your 20s, between 20 and 30, when still really you're you're still a young, you know, childlike human figuring out the world, figuring out how to form relationships um, and how to deal with obstacles as they come along. It's not always a conscious decision to take on expectations either. No. Sometimes you can have them and you don't know why you have them completely it's because of the, the influences that you've yeah. had. And that's something that we look at in TA as well, um, which we call script theory. It's about kind of the life story that we create for ourselves. Um, and in essence, it's a blueprint, you know, and we start writing that from the day we're born. Um, about who we are, the way we are, how the world treats us, what the world is like. Um, and, you know, sometimes people can really think that the world is, is out to get them and is a horrible place because that's the story they've written. And, of course, when you write a story, it's easy then to find experiences and events that can confirm it. Um, and sometimes that's some of the work that I'll do with somebody who may be really ready to do kind of more transformative change work um, is kind of rewriting that story and maybe taking on a different view of how the world is um, and really the ultimate goal with TA and this is why it's so idyllic is to promote autonomy and um, to, to promote freedom 
definitely psychological freedom, but to promote autonomy in, in a greater sense as well, whether it be societal or, or in your, within just your own community, um, to give you freedom, freedom of expression, freedom to think for yourself, um, and sometimes just freedom from your own thoughts, you know, because if you've been thinking a certain way about yourself for a long time, sometimes it can be really hard to get away from that. And that's why autonomy is the ultimate goal of TA. And we try to do that through three things, and that is increasing awareness. So that is about really helping somebody understand why they are the way they are, why they um, react the way they react, and and what might have affected that when they were growing up. So that's where we, we make we do some psychoeducation as part of the therapy work, where we teach them some theory, um, and then to really help them increase intimacy. So to be having intimate relationships, whether that's romantic and sexual or not, just intimate relationships. <clears throat> and that's a big one for young men in terms of sharing with their with their male counterparts or female friends, for that matter, what's going on for them, like talking about how they feel. Um, and I know this is something that's very much been in the public domain over the last couple of years. And I know Blind Boy talks about a lot about how young men don't speak about their feelings and how we have an epidemic in Ireland around that. And I think we do. And the matter, you know, we can talk about it like until the cows come home. But what we actually need to do is start encouraging them to talk. We've identified the problem now. Now, where is the solution? Like, you know, let's get on with it. Like, um, and I think that's a, a huge mission for me and my work in schools around delivering well-being programs is to break down the barriers around feelings. Like, you know, sometimes young women have this injunction, you know, that you can't feel anger. And the injunction that men have sometimes is that you can't feel fear. So that's now, some kind of conditioning from a young age? 100%. And that comes from parents, but it also comes from society. Like, I definitely had a, had a strong injunction of my own of uh, boys don't cry. Like a hundred percent, and don't feel. I didn't feel anything for a very long time. I can still remember the first day I think I started actually feeling, because what I was was just very depressed and sad all the time. But I wasn't feeling everything else that was going on, because my default was to just be depressed. Um, so I think that we really need to to be implementing change there, because it's one thing to be saying we're noticing the problem. Now we need to get on with it and solve it. And I think the only way we can break that down is by encouraging your young people to open up and talk. Um, and then the, the last bit then that we, we do in TA to promote autonomy is to help people increase the amount of spontaneity in their life. You have to have fun. Like, it's just, it's part of who we are. And I think that well, as we grow older, and I'm, I'm using inverted commas around adult here now, like when we get grown-ups, we become very serious. You know, it's like, oh, but I need to be a proper adult now. I need to get a job, buy a car. I can't be having fun anymore. And, you know, simple things, like there was a big movement a couple of years ago around colouring, which I think maybe became a bit of a uh, a commercial ploy in the end because everybody was out buying colouring books, and that was great for the, for the retailers. But simple things like colouring can be really helpful to encourage us to have more spontaneity in our life. I mean, it's still very structured because you're colouring between the lines, but it's, it's a starting point. So they're the three things that I would say to people. Um, increase your awareness, intimacy and spontaneity and you'll have a more autonomous life. You mentioned something there about scripting and it, it kind of... I see that a lot of people probably change their script or change their life circumstances on the back of a, like a major life event of someone like has a car crash or something and they come out the other side and they're they decide they're not going they're going to quit their job they're going to do what they wanted to do their whole life or if someone gets a divorce or someone gets really sick and comes out the other side they change it and it struck me that whenever we did the workshop together and just in general would have been thinking about these types of theories and strategies and tools and stuff that 
these are like really useful to make positive changes in your life without having to wait for you know like get hit by a bus first for to make it 100 percent. yeah i mean i in that workshop i did a goals exercise with you that i'm just thinking back on now and i, I think yeah we did three sets of goals lists one was uh what's your lifetime goals the other was what's your next three years and then the last one i asked people to do was um if you were going to be dead in six months time what would you do for the the next six months um and i do that over and over again like you know because people are always shocked they're always like oh yeah, why am I not thinking about all the fun things I'd like to do in my life? And when I did that list, actually, when I wrote down the list, and I was talking to a couple of other people who were at the workshop as well from the team, I wrote down the list of what I would do if I was only had six months to live. And I was like, actually, I could just do all these things now. Like, there's things that are well within my, like, I have got the time to do them. I just can never give myself the time. Yeah. But I just finished a course in, I think we were talking about it before mm. in Oxford, in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Yeah. I was flying over every fortnight to, to do a full day over there. And the thing that was kind of like, I guess it was quite heavy meditation kind of based course, but it yeah. had uh, the theory behind it as well. And the thing that I think that I took away from it most is kind of connected to that point I was making about not having to wait for, you know, to get really sick, to realize what you have and mm. not to stop taking things for granted. But it was the very fact that that course was based on building more awareness of how you're feeling is probably the most valuable tool that you can use to realize and get and then identify that you want to give yourself the space to do particular things or certain things a hundred percent i i think that that anything like that is a positive intervention and i suppose that kind of leads on nicely to the work that i'm doing or kind of focusing on doing more now which is more education because um a tutor of mine in the uk has a very good um analogy and that is that um, educators are upstream uh, teaching people how to swim and therapists are downstream pulling people who are drowning out of the river um, and if we can teach more people how to swim at this thing called life then we're, we'll be doing a good job and I think this is the re really big challenge that society has over the next 10 years is putting more preventative measures into how we treat health in general um, because so much of our health system is focused on um, cure rather than prevention and I think we really need to flip that on its head we need a much more prevention based um, aspect particularly for mental health because I think so much of what people face could be avoided I mean there's always going to be a certain amount of therapy needed bad things are always going to happen to people unfortunately I sound like a right pessimist when I say that but I think it's a, a reality um people are always going to die there's always going to be bereavement you know there's going to be things like that but I think generally we could be doing a whole lot better um, and one of my main focuses going forward now is psychosocial education and that is teaching young people or anybody who listen to me for that matter how to understand their relationship with themselves and other people and to giving them a simple set of tools and strategies that they can use to do that and mindfulness based therapy is, is one of those things that could be used um, I'm just using TA because it's something that I feel passionate about but there's lots of different ways that this can be done Is TA connected with cognitive behavioural therapy in any way? <clears throat> um, not particularly cognitive behavioural therapy would have come after TA and definitely borrows from TA in aspects but I think all of these therapeutic models are, are, are interlinked naturally anyway because they all come from the same roots which is Jung and Freud you know they're all grown out of somewhere um, 
And I think cognitive behavioural therapy definitely has its place. Um, it's just not something that I'm overly familiar with because it's never therapy I've been on the receiving end of and it's never something I've done any training in. Um, but TA would be quite cognitive in its roots. So there's definitely strong links there. It seems to be kind of a Western thing to uh, to have a lot of theory and research and stuff behind these te- these types of um these types of approaches and the other side of the spectrum is probably the eastern philosophy of like meditating and then their whole kind of like idea there is to get rid of your ego completely Mm. Uh, is there is there kind of a crossover there in some way or influences from the the two approaches well i suppose like i'm going to sound like i'm plugging ta constantly here now you are there's nothing wrong with with that like i suppose that's another unique thing uh with ta and one of the other reasons that i was very drawn to it is because it's pulled in all the best bits from all of the different theories so we have a whole school now in terms of developing ta and spirituality which really comes from an Eastern kind of point of view. And it's about incorporating TA into it so that we can use TA to frame it. Because what TA is more than anything is it's a way of being and it's a way of teaching and it's a way of understanding people. So you can pull anything into TA and analyze it and get a very simple, easy way of looking at something. And I think sometimes that can be the barrier with more of the Eastern methodologies that some people want to know, but how does it work, you know? Because they might lack the faith or trust in it. Um, And I meditate myself and I find it very, very, very potent. I think that some of my biggest successes have come down to having meditation practice and keeping myself very grounded in that but i don't think that anybody has any one answer i think all of these things combined have a lot of good to give the world it's just about choosing the one that suits you and works for you and i would shop around that's another important message for young people i think none of these uh theories are 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 the the one you know, uh, they're all just theories, like they're not facts. So I would say that if you're if you're wanting to go for therapy or you're wanting to work with someone on personal development, give it a go. But you don't have to commit. You know, if it's not working, then just end it and then try a, uh, try a different person. Shop around. Like the same thing I can feel with uh, diff- building a meditation practice. There's different types of meditation and different mm. types suit different people. And as well as that, I feel like it has got a lot to do with the method or the theory and how it applies to you just at that particular time, the way that the way that you're feeling and stuff like that, there, yeah. and you'll, you'll be picking up stuff um, at better time. I don't know, like say you'll, you'll be feeling you'll be feeling the vibes of something at a particular time in your life, and then later on you might not be feeling it. Maybe a different way to do it then. Yeah, 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 completely. I definitely agree with that. Um, and I think it's just about keeping an open mind. That's definitely another core aspect I think of this whole mental health piece that we're talking around, and that is giving people the tools to understand how they can access services. Because, you know, you have a GP since you're a baby. So it's like if you need to go get a GP, then you know where to go. But people are often kind of stumped about, well, where could I go find a counsellor or a psychotherapist? Or, you know, how who who would be somebody that I go to to help me with this dilemma or obstacle I got? And I don't think that counselling and psychotherapy is always the answer either. There's lots of other professionals out there who are very helpful. Uh, one thing that I signpost people to quite a lot, particularly in their mid-20s, where they might be really being challenged around what they want to do career-wise is going to see a career guidance counsellor. Um, it's something that I did before I went back and became uh, a therapist and it was really helpful. So I think you really, we really need to help young people as well understand what services are out there that they can access so that they are in a better place to choose the right one for them. It's class. I really like where you're at 
because it's kind of an intersection of practice, theory, mm. and not kind of pushing things yeah. on people too much. But when I think about the mental health services in Ireland at the minute and the amount of mental health issues that we have and the amount of suicides that we have, it's probably fair to say that on a governmental level or an institutional level, we're fairly crap at dealing with mental health, like in terms of how we're educating people about it or how we're dealing with the problem. Yeah, I do think there's an awful lot of um, issues around that. And I think there's a lack of focus as well. Um, I'm I'm frustrated because um, as a professional who's gone and done the training, my National Health Service won't employ me because in order to be a therapist in the HSE, you also have to have a medical qualification. So I'd have to be a nurse, for example, and a therapist for, in order for them to employ me because they would employ me as a nurse, but then I'd work as a therapist. I mean, that's crazy. Like, you know, it's like, why, why does somebody have to have two professions to do one job, you know? So things like that, like I, I wrote um, several letters last year to my local um TDs and including to the, the Minister for Mental Health at the time, Jim Daly, um, because I was very frustrated about the state of affairs. Um, but I didn't get much joy really. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ambivalence around the issue. And I think the HSE is its own monster in terms of bringing about change that it can be difficult to, to do in any large organization like that. But it's just not good enough. It's not good enough when we have young people suffering um and like you say taking their own life on, on a weekly basis um we we need to be seeing change quicker and I, and I think we need more funding in that area in particular and for me it doesn't it can't just come at the back end because we have a problem it needs to be front loaded as well so i would like to not only see an increase in service provision but I'd also like to see an increase in education. And the National Council for Curriculum um, have increased the amount of wellbeing hours now for the junior cycle, which is great, but they haven't given much direction to schools on how to do that, other than that you can increase SPHE, CSB and PE. Um, and that's not the answer to the problem. Like, you know, just if you, because you get a couple of extra SPHE classes a week doesn't mean that your mental health is going to improve. Um, to be fair, there's some really fundamentally great teachers out there who in some classrooms they are um, helping people improve their mental health but I think the teachers in are in a difficult position around SPHE because a lot of the time they don't feel like they're the best people to be delivering that subject they would like to see other skilled professionals coming in to do it now I can't speak for all teachers but I that's what I'm hearing from teachers is that they feel like other people like me for example they'd like to see us delivering that if you had a blank canvas to address the mental health issue that we're seeing in Ireland, what would be one of some of the main things that you would put down? I definitely think that I put a huge focus, first of all, on education. I think a whole lot needs to be done around um, development in general um, and not just in relation to mental health. But I think that these are some key things that affect people's mental health and continue to do so um, because I really see health as a holistic thing. So, for example, we have young people leaving school that are doing honours, maths, for example, or algebra or, you know, applied physics, all these wonderful academic subjects. They can't cook a dinner. You know, uh, they don't know how to exercise. You know, they don't know how to look after themselves. Now, these are key things that we should be covering as part of education. And some people might laugh at me and say that, well, that's not connected to mental health. It is. Because if you're not getting a good diet, 
you're more likely to get depression. If you're not exercising, you're more likely to get depression. The first thing I do with any person who comes to me who's depressed is I'll speak about sleep, exercise and nutrition. Because we can do all the work in the world around how they're feeling, but if they don't get those three things, they're not going to get better. Sleep has a huge effect on how you feel um, in terms of your hormone levels. And if you're sleeping during the day and awake at night, and all, you know, your hormones are going to be all over the place. So I think that education around health and development in general is crucial because I cannot believe that it's going to be 2020 next year in Ireland and that there's teenagers leaving school who can't cook a meal for themselves. I, I, I just think, like, just think about that. Like, think about it. Like, they're going into universities studying amazingly complicated subjects and doing fantastic professions afterwards, but they can't cook themselves a dinner. Like, I just, I think that's baffling. So that'll be top of the list on the canvas, I think, around, around what I would do in terms of prevention. We, we're doing our youth an injustice by not giving them the skills they need to lead a healthy life. Um, and then after that, around service provision, I think that a grade needs to be introduced into the HSE for counsellors and psychotherapists so that the HSE can employ them without having to be a nurse or a doctor as well. Um, and I think that at a primary care level, there needs to be counsellors and, and, and therapists available in every GP practice. And I mean, that's a big ask because right now our primary care is is crap as well, you know, because we, we've got a, a private GP kind of service at the moment with medical cards, etc. But there is going to hopefully be big change in primary care in Ireland over the next 10 years um, and kind of seeing more of an NHS model adopted. And I would like with that at the same time to see an introduction of therapists into primary care and in the community i think they, they would be my my top two things on that canvas like i would love to hear someone trying to argue against all those things that you just said mm. because they're so common sense and yeah needed well sometimes the most simple things are the best you know this doesn't have to be overcomplicated. like you know and you know the hse talk about cost benefit analysis all the time like that's all they're interested in that's how healthcare is run these days you know if we use this drug does that mean less people will will be in long-term palliative care therefore it'll cost us less money well i mean if you were teaching these kids to be able to cook and clean and look after themselves they'd be taking less antidepressants and it'd be costing you less money i think it's you know it's win-win here we've spent the last while talking about mental health which is unbelievable and um it's one of the main subjects that still i guess to some extent is still stigmatized today and the other probably the only other the biggest other issue that's stigmatized today is sexual health mm. which is the other area that you're working in yeah i suppose so i say like it's definitely an area that i feel very comfortable talking about and an area that i don't have any qualms i think that there's probably many reasons for that i think Growing up as a gay guy, I think it takes a certain amount of the stigma away anyway, because, you know, if you're part of a minority, like, I think immediately you just get maybe a little bit more confident to talk about things that other people maybe don't. Um, and I think that a, a hu another huge reason that there's problems there is around the lack of sexual education in schools. We're crap at sexual education in Ireland. Terrible. Terrible. 
Um, and it comes back, isn't it interesting? It comes back to education again. You know, that that's interesting, I think, that like here we are now talking about this completely different subject connected to health, and we're already back at education, you know, because that is the, the first place to go in terms of prevention. Um, there's lots of changes happening on the horizon around that, um, but, uh, you know, again, not fast and, and, and not good enough for me anyway. Um, I would like to see them moving a lot quicker on it, and I would like to see the compulsory directives being brought down from government level from the Department of Education about what needs to be covered um, while, while kids are in school because right now there is RSE which is part of the SPHE subject but um, I think what is so, RSE? So it's relationships and sexuality education and it's part of the SPHE subject what is SPHE? SPHE is social personal health education but um I would question how much of it actually gets covered. And even if it does get covered, is it enough? You know, because I'm meeting young people who, you know, they don't know how to put on a condom. You See, know. on that topic, actually, I think that when I'm listening to you talking about this, I suppose the education of the kids is dependent on the education of the teachers who are around about the same age as us, generally speaking. Mm. And like the sexual education that we got in school, I remember they split the boys and the girls up. And we ended up watching a movie or something and they showed the girls how to put condoms on. That's taking like, this is maybe a little bit upside down here. It's like, it's a strange way to run yeah, it. Yeah, it can be, you know. And I just think that there's still an awful lot of myths out there as well. You know, um, I don't go into schools currently and do any sex education. It's definitely something that I'm hoping to do in the near future, but right now I don't. But I know that some of my colleagues... Um, who work in different areas of Ireland and things have had shocking things said to them when they've gone in, you know, about like um, thinking that people could get pregnant from a toilet seat. That's still a big one out there. And um, thinking that you could get HIV from kissing. So I think that you like can't, you can't get pregnant the first time having sex. You know, <laughs> no. it's very worrying when you hear people saying things like this, because you are really wondering like, where is this coming from and why isn't it being challenged in school and why are they not learning the truth? Um, and learning what they need to to again lead a healthy happy life you know and I think there's probably a fear in schools around covering this subject and I understand that you know because for a lot of the people I think you made a good point they're often around our age or probably older and they they might have their own issues around sexual health in terms of like they didn't get it they feel uncomfortable talking about it and you know that's very much Ireland of the past you know it's like we don't talk about sex you know that that's something that's brushed under the carpet it's nearly like we have to get the kids gener the generation of kids now to be comfortable talking about it so that they can be comfortable talking to 100%. the next and generation behind them the kids now are comfortable you know like because of course the other areas of, of sexual health because I see sexual health as a kind of a holistic view of sexual health so not just the act of sex and anything that might go with it in terms of contracting STIs or STDs but also sexual orientation and then gender identity um, which would be kind of the three areas. Kids are very knowledgeable these days now but mainly because of the internet and um, because they're out there researching it themselves and the unfortunate part about that is that they're not always getting accurate information you know i would say a lot of them are but for every you know eight that get accurate information there's two that don't um so i think that's that's something that needs to be addressed as well but um i think young people these days are are more attuned in terms of who they are what they want to be doing who they're attracted to and how they identify themselves 
I'm just thinking back to whenever I was a teenager and we were probably quite lucky in that our mum was a librarian and she had tried to, had the conversation about sex a couple of times and probably been a teenage boy at the time I kind of shut it down quite fast but she then got this book from the library and just left it in the front room where I was doing my study and she's like I'm just going to leave that there I was like oh no God, what did you even get that for it's disgusting and then she went out for a walk and I was straight into the front room I was like flicking through it trying to leave it back in the exact right place so she thought she wouldn't know that I, uh, that I, I, looked I had at a it. very similar experience and I don't know what the book you were given was called but I got given boy talk um, and yeah it was left on, on my bed one day and like that I, I was disgusted but yeah, I, I, I flicked through it pretty quickly and went back to it a few times Um and I suppose in a way you kind of have to say we were lucky that we had mums like ours who gave us that book because there was nothing else if that if I didn't read that book that was it you know I didn't get it in school um I I even remember having an interesting experience uh, this would have been around 2006 2007 I'd say um being in an SPHE class and the the teacher um was talking about relationships and she kind of like asked me she's like oh do you have a girlfriend and like I was thinking afterwards I was like god like oh even our questions are very loaded you know because it's like she had made an assumption I was heterosexual so of course like I just said no but I didn't say I had a boyfriend you know it was like that that was a piece that was missing so we even have to think about our language when we're teaching subjects like this and we're talking about relationships to young people we can't make any assumptions you know we need to say things like oh are you in a relationship with someone or or things like that because um she shut me down straight away and i think that's something that can happen quite a lot in these classrooms about various subjects is people can get shut down because of the way questions are worded or the way teachers say things feels like we're in a new era of terminology and kind of labels in a way. I use that kind of term sparingly um, or whatever, but there seems to be a conversation going on now about the way that quit labels are made on people, the thing about gender pronouns and stuff like that there. Yeah. And what what's the lowdown on that at the moment? Um, I suppose... Working with trans young people has taught me an awful lot around pronouns and around my own gender identity as well. Um, I would have always identified as man, um, he, him pronouns, um, definitely present as a man, uh, dress like one, you know, it would have been, that's just what it would do because, uh, for a long time when I was growing up, I only really saw men and women. I didn't see anything, anything else that was non-binary or, or whatever. But I think that there's a whole area now that's much more visible than it ever was before. I think it always existed, but I just don't think it was visible. And I think that's what's happening now is it's becoming more and more visible. And I think younger people are becoming more visible because they're more confident about it, um, which I think is a very positive thing. Essentially, I think that what is happening at the core of it all is that the gender construct is being challenged, which might not be a bad thing um, because, you know, I think we have to remember that it is a construct, you know, like, you know, sex and gender are two separate things. Um, so I'm not trying to say that like male and female are a construct there. That's anatomy. Like that's what your bits are essentially. But, um, you know, we have intersex people, for example, who, who are neither male or female in sex. They're, they're intersex. They might have both or, um, they might have markers where they have the hormone, like very high hormone levels. Um, that might not be relating to, the genitals they have so i think you need to keep that in mind and the prevalence of intersex people is quite high it's one in 50 and um, that are born 
So um, I think in terms of gender then, gender is an identity. That is about how you express your sex and how you um, present that to the world, okay, and how you identify internally. So for me, this was a real education because I was like, actually, I didn't really know what gender was before I started exploring and reading about this area because I had kind of lumped gender and sex in to the same bed together as if they were the same thing you know just male and female but they're not um sex is male and female about your 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 genitals etc but then gender is much more about how you express and, and present yourself to the world and that made a lot of sense to me then and up until you know I suppose the last five years is when it's become really visible in Ireland. We had kind of accepted the gender construct to be binary. You were either a man or you were a woman. And I definitely, when I was a kid, would have been aware of drag queens and cross-dressers. Um, but I don't think even then we were really making sense that they were gender identities, whereas now they are. They are gender identities. In Irish, there's two separate words for sex and gender, oh, actually, okay. in a way. Yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I think I get surprised when people seem to get offended if someone identifies as a certain way because it's nobody else's business what way somebody wants to be identified. But is there a negative side to this thing that, that's happening today where there's more and more different forms of sort of identity that people can attach themselves to? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'm kind of going to probably go off on a on a mad one now with this because I think this is a real area of interest for me. Uh, uh, I'm somebody who really likes existentialism, so I could talk about identity all day long. But um, I don't think there's ever a negative side to anybody wanting to identify in any way other than the way they want to identify. Um, and I think if anybody has a problem with that, that's their problem. I would very much view that, uh, look at it in those plain, simple terms. Of course, it's never that simple because sometimes people get a lot of abuse for wanting to identify differently or for dressing a different way in a, a way that's different from society wanting them to. And that can create a lot of problems for them in their life. Does which, it work the other way as well? If, for example, there are people identify a certain way, but the other people around them don't know that that person identifies a certain way. Is there a thing where the person who has the sort of less common gender identity or whatever gets offended by the people who are around them? Um, I think it can be. Um, I think that's a tricky one because of course, like a minority is always going to be on the defense or most of the time anyway, that tends to be the way these things work. Um, and I think that if somebody misgenders somebody, um, <clears throat> then there's two ways to look at it. And this is very much at the core now of the work that I do with young trans people around the issues that they might be facing in school. Um, and there's always two sides to that coin. Sometimes people just misgender people because they forget. Because maybe that person was once a different person to them. Maybe once they had a different name or a different gender identity. So that person is getting used to the fact that they're now identifying a certain way, if that makes sense. And they might make mistakes from time to time, particularly parents. They struggle with it because they might have um, had a son born and that person is now identifying as female and has a female name. So the parent might be struggling to come to terms with that. But then the other side of it is where people are are misgendering on purpose 
and and that's that's then the real dangerous element of, of society you know and um interestingly enough actually um I was part of a workshop last Saturday in Cork with a researcher from UL who's doing research on young trans people and their needs and experiences in schools, etc. And um, we we um, heard from the young people, so from some of the young people who attended, that they their experience in school sometimes is that teachers actually misgendered them and continue to do so, and apologize when they do and say that they're they were sorry but they never get it right and that for me then is where there's a the flip side you know so that's not just a mistake that's so let's say else. for example if um so you you identify as a woman and i say or where is he or something like that is that, yeah, where, is yeah, that, yeah, that exactly yeah or they might continue to call them um what's typically referred to in the trans community and i use all of this terminology very lightly because i'm not trans myself so um sometimes i, I wonder if it's okay for me to be saying these things or not but i think it's acceptable sometimes they refer to uh it as their dead name okay and for a trans person it can be very it can bring up a lot of emotion for them and it can be very hurtful for somebody to use their dead name or to ask them what their dead name was um it's dead it's no longer theirs as far as they're concerned you know so um i think that they can be on the receiving end of what can be actually quite passive aggressive abuse it's almost like bullying really um and i think that comes from uh, society in more general terms because I think I always like to look at the root of these problems and I think we have to in order to see where this comes from look at the power that uh, the gender construct has in our society and I mean that's evident because we, we don't have to look too far to look at the inequalities between men and women and I think like that's part of the gender construct. You know, it's about having uh, uh, these these two opposing genders in a way, if you want to. You know, and you know, Jung is responsible in part for this because it was he who began writing about um, genders at the turn of the Industrial Revolution, um, and he. Uh, played his own part in creating this gender construct about the difference between men and women, um, and I think that um, we we ha- we don't have to look too far back to see where this has come from and realize that it is just a construct. It's something that people wrote about that they created that women are this way, that men are that way, that this is how we should behave. And I think what we're actually seeing in society now, Anla, is a very radical approach to gender which is about trampling all over the previous notions that gender is binary and saying that actually people come in many shapes forms and sizes and colors and that they're all okay and that they should be able to identify in whatever way they feel comfortable but then if someone was born as a man and identifies as a woman later on is that not just another string to the bow of the gender construct it can be so like some trans people will remain in the binary because they will go from being a a male to a female but then there's a whole host of people that will identify with different completely different gender types like uh, non-binary for example so they don't prescribe to men or women so they're the people that might want they them pronouns um or a host of other pronouns as well so they will just will not want to be referred to as he or she but if there's I, another one, is that not just another gender? Is it another another one of the it, things that's the problem in the first place? Well, there's lots of different talk about this at the moment, you know. 
about actually is what's happening here is that they're going to create so many that it's all just going to implode and then we're just going to realise that this never mattered in the first place. You should just have a a name that that you identify with and then that's it. This is interesting because um, I, over the last, probably over the last eight months, I would say, have been having my own existential questions and angst around who I am in relation to my gender and my sometimes my uncomfortability with being a man. And with being part of that group within society that is deemed to have more power, and particularly being a white man, because you know I'm going up on the 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 privilege scale all the time. You know I'm a white man and I'm from the West. Okay, that's another notch up again. Um, you know the fact that I'm gay it keeps me down a little bit, but not much. And it's like I've been trying to figure out. Okay, do I want to be identifying as a man in society? Is that something that I feel comfortable with? And I have slowly, and it's not something I demand because I think for a lot of people when they look at me, they look at me and go, he's a man. So they use he, him pronouns. So it's not something I jump in and go, you can't say that. I don't want to be identified that way. But I am asking people who know me to stop using he, him pronouns and to use my name. And the reason that I'm doing that is because my name is the only label that I feel entirely comfortable. And the reason is because it describes all of me. It's like my title if I was like a written piece of work. So therefore I feel very comfortable. But whereas if somebody refers to me as gay or somebody refers to me as a man or somebody refers to me as white or somebody refers to me as Irish, that's only describing a part of who I am. So I, I don't, I'm not really comfortable with that. Yeah, I, I can understand that as well. And I've got a couple other examples that kind of spring to mind when you're talking there. For exa- One, for example, is the podcast I did with a person who was living on the Keys in the city centre who abandoned all forms of name mm. and just sends XX and has gone through the court system without a name mm. because of the fact that that person didn't want to be attached to the label of the name because maybe the name is sort of a burden in a sense as well but the other thing that comes to mind there when you're talking is we do a lot of work with people who have varying levels of disability and stuff like that yeah and from talking to the some of the teenagers that we're working with one of the things that constantly comes up is that they feel that people are labeling them as being disabled Disabled, yeah and that's not fair either because it's just something like i mean that's a subjective term in itself yeah and there's much more to them and obviously i'm in a very privileged position to have gotten to know these people over the last number of years and they're you know like unbelievable people whether or not they walk a little bit differently or don't walk at all is irrelevant yeah i I, can't, I didn't intend telling this story when I came on this podcast today, but it's funny how things came up. I I got given a great gift when I was 16 years old that I didn't realise at the time um, in terms of forming my identity. Um, and it came from my own mother, who's a wonderful person. Um, and I don't know if she knows the gift she gave me. We've never actually talked about it, but I'll get her to listen to this podcast now and we might have a chat about it afterwards. So... Um, well, I told my mum I was 16, uh, when I, sorry, when I told her I was gay, I was 16. And, uh, we were in my school in Clonacilty in the principal's office. And I walked in and whatever happened. And then she just looked at me as your mum would. And she said, sure, it doesn't matter. You'll always be John. And that really cemented for me a sense of, uh, of who I was. 
and a sense of what was important. Um, and I don't know if she knew what she was doing. I, I, I'll guess not because uh, she's somebody who acts from her intuition quite a lot. But that's a very powerful message. You know, that actually this is irrelevant because that's what the subtext were, was. You know, this is irrelevant because you're John and that's what matters, you know. And I think that was a wonderful gift to be given. And I think that it has really stood to me in terms of how I identify within society. And that is that I'm John and, and that's how people know me. And I'm great because there's so much under that umbrella. But I don't get pigeonholed because of I'm being gay or because I'm a therapist. And if people try and do that, often I'll, I'll, I'll rebel against it. Like, I'm like, no, I don't want that label there, actually. It doesn't feel comfortable. Seeing as we're sharing sort of pivotal mother stories from mm. whenever we were teenagers, I have one of my own that I don't think my mum knows about either. But I remember I was about, must have been about 12 or something like that. And I remember coming into the kitchen in our house after being playing out in the street where like, we just spent a lot of time out in the street playing around anyway. And I came into the kitchen and said something like, my mum must asked me what, what I was up to or something. And I was like, oh, I've just met such and such a person. Obviously can't remember who it was. And I was like, they were, they were weird. And she just looked at me and she was like, but maybe they're normal and maybe you're weird. Yeah. Like, how do you know that they, they're the weird one? Maybe you're the weird one and they're totally normal. And then from that moment, it just kind of clicked that, that thing about judging people or, kind of having an opinion about people it's all very relative and really it's irrelevant <laughs> in completely. a lot of ways yeah yeah completely and i think that um identity is such a strong thing that runs through all of us but we spend very little time examining it um and i think that that's something that really plays into our mental health as well because at the core of a lot of problems are some existential problems you know about not really feeling like people know who they are um, and unfortunately, I just don't think that you can get through life without a period of time in which you just try and self-discover. Uh, typically, in the past, that has happened an awful lot at middle age. You know, there's always been that joke about, uh, you know, having a breakdown, um, midlife crisis. You know, the man who goes out and buys the sports car or, or, or what, or quits the job or, you know, the woman who, who quits everything and moves to the countryside or whatever it might be. But I think that that's happening earlier now. I think less people are getting to midlife without knowing who they are because they're being challenged by the existential questions much sooner. And I think that if you're somebody who has questioned your sexual identity or your gender identity, then you're doing that way earlier. So I think I'm kind of lining myself up not to be having a midlife crisis because I've spent so much time examining those aspects of myself. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. But I think particularly for people who are questioning their gender, I think those existential questions are, are coming up way sooner than they ever have for people in society before. And that's another challenge for society because teachers and parents aren't prepared for that because in some cases they haven't even gone through it themselves. Unreal. How can people, I think a good way of wrapping up the podcast would be maybe to put some resources on the table for people, if people are listening to this, and we've covered quite a lot of ground, I think. Hmm. So there may be a few different resources that people may be able to go and find out about. If people are in a position where they would like to reach out because of a mental health issue, they're experiencing at the minute what would be a good route for them 
I think it all depends on the circumstance that they're in and in terms of what they can do. Um, if they want to go down the public services route because that's what they can afford to do, um, which a lot of people are in that position, then there is a service called SIPSI, which is counselling in private or non-private in primary care. Um, so if they go speak to their GP, then the GP can refer them onto that service. Um, in a lot of cases, there's quite a lengthy waiting list, so you just have to be prepared for that. Um, alternatively, then they could seek out a private practitioner like myself. Um, and in order to do that, you could go on a couple of different websites, but the website that I'd probably recommend would be IAHIP, which is the Irish um, Association of Integrative and Humanistic Therapists. And there'll be a directory on there where they can find therapists in their local area. Um, in terms of other services then more focused on young people, you could go to Jigsaw, uh, there's Jigsaw based in Cork and there's uh, lots of hubs are dotted around the country as well. Um, and they, they provide a really good service for people between, I'm not sure actually what the starting age is, I don't know if it's 16 or not, but it goes right up till 25. And Jigsaw are great because they're different to CAMS, which is the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, because at CAMS you stop at 18. But chicks will kind of go, well, you don't become an adult like we were talking about earlier the minute you turn 18. So we work with people right up to 25. Um, so they're two good services. Um, if you're in a particularly bad situation and you need urgent assistance, then I would urge you to go to your GP as soon as possible. And they may re refer you on to CAMS if you're, you're a child or to the adult mental health service. Um, and of course, anybody who might be listening um, that's in crisis, I, I would you know, I would ask you to, to reach out to somebody like Samaritans um, uh, who offer 24-7 telephone counselling um, or if you're in urgent need of help to, to, to ring 999 because I think that's important. When we do these podcasts, often we forget that there could be people listening right now who are in a very bad place and need help um, and sometimes they just need to hear it from somebody that they, they need to make that phone call now. Um, otherwise, then, in terms of services, I suppose it's about thinking about if you don't want to go down the counselling and uh, psychotherapy route, you know, what are you looking for? Are you looking for help with career? Then maybe a, a guidance counsellor. Uh, there'll be a directory of guidance counsellors online. You can look that up. Um, or maybe a coach would be better for you because you're looking to help somebody help you with some goals. Um, and then the other thing I would be thinking would be something along the lines of personal development um, for uh, looking for a personal development course. I know the course you did was a qualification in Oxford, but I know there's shorter versions of those courses dotted all over Ireland. Um, and I think they're, like you were saying earlier, they're always really good options for people in terms of creating more awareness about how they're feeling. So they're good personal development tools. And then for sexual health, specifically because that's one big area we've covered um in cork specifically um there's a service um called yhs which is not too far away from here actually um it's it's near the train station in cork and that's the youth health service um but it's predominantly focused on sexual health and they offer counseling and sexual health testing there so go check them out it's a free service run by the hse for um young people up as far as the age of 23 is that somewhere people can get contraceptives as well? Yeah, they can get contraceptions there as well. They will discuss all contraception options there. 
Um, and then the sexual health center where I work um, offers a range of services from rapid HIV testing. So you can call in and get a rapid, rapid HIV test um, and it'll be done in 30 seconds. Um, and you can get that. Uh, you can ring up and, and book that whenever you want. It's free. Um, and we offer counseling uh, in the center as well. Um, and then last of all, particularly for trans, young trans people that might be listening or parents that might be listening of young trans people, um, there's two kind of main supports in Cork, uh, which is Transformers, which I run. Um, so if you want to, to attend Transformers, or if you're a young person, then you can contact me directly about that. Um, and there's Transparency, which runs at the same time as Transformers, which is for the parents of the young people. Um, and they run once a month, every month. But you can contact me about joining either of those. We don't give out locations and times uh, for those, but you can just contact me and I can get in touch about that. Um, um, are there a couple of websites people can go to as well to visit? Yeah, so I suppose the big one around mental health um, would be Little Things. Um, so the government launched a campaign a couple of years ago um, around mental health and I think it's called uh, littlethings.ie um, so there's lots of information there about the support service that are available nationally and locally um, and for sexual health then I'd be urging you to go on to um, www.sexualhealthcentre.com um, or on to Healthy Ireland or sexualwellbeing.ie all of those have resources on them that if you might have questions um, and then for young trans people I'd be urging you to go and look at the Tenny website which is tenny.ie and for maybe young LGBT people to be looking at belong to um, they all of these have really good resources because you never know there might be a youth group or something in your local area that would be perfect rather than doing one-to-one there's spunout.ie as well my yeah. friend Timmy Hammersley works yeah, for that, yeah, that organisation yeah. that's a really good resource for young people in general yeah yeah. and last but not least how can people keep in touch with what, what you're doing um, so I have my own website it's www.johnfleming.ie 1M and Fleming lots of people put in two and they miss me out um, and I've got all the information on there um, but I'm I'm always willing to take phone calls get emails from people uh, people might have questions about some of the things I talked today. Uh, feel free to give me a call or or drop me an email if you've a question. I'm always willing to talk to people about TA because um, I'm passionate about teaching TA and particularly about teaching TA in Ireland. Um, so I'm always willing to have a chat with somebody about that. Um, and if anybody is interested in working with me, having me into their school, having me into their youth group, or working with me on a one-to-one capacity, um, just get in contact. Thank you. No problem. It was a pleasure. Thank you. episode 38 is in the bag. Gurum Mila Mila Maigat to John for taking the time out of his schedule and his day to record the podcast with me. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and who has been getting in touch. You know what to do at this stage. Share the episode around, get in touch on social media. And if you want to support the podcast, then you can find us on the Patreon platform, patreon.com forward slash rabble matters. And you can go and check that out if you fancy it. And if you don't, of course, that's okay. The rest of the week for me now, I will be at the Sports Ability Day in the Marduk Arena on Saturday with the Ackley crew and also hanging out with the Rebel Wheelers who we work with on a regular basis. The Sports Ability Day, this is our third year being over at it and it is a really great initiative to help broaden the 
opportunities of participation in physical activity for people who have very wide-ranging disabilities, especially kids, to keep the children active and to create equal opportunities is a really important part of life, no matter how able or unable you are to perform any given task. So if you're around Cork, call over to the Mardik Arena on Saturday and come and have a chat with us if you fancy it. But other than that, thanks a million for listening. Can you fear a August? Gideon Kedarala, Slang of Oil.